at the Biltmore. Uh-oh, make it work correctly. Okay, adios amigos, see you next Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, promise less mistakes. But tunes just as good.
OTR is proud to support Olio Festival and Mint Records at the Enza Club on Friday, August 14th. Check out the choir practice, the Wit Sundays, Kellerissa and Apollo Ghosts. That night, the Enza Club will also feature paintings by Ronan Boyle. And if that's not enough, there will be watermelon at the show. Come check these great artists out on August 14th at the Enza Club. To pick up your Olio Festival passes and check out the entire lineup, visit httpoliofestival.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're running around the studios here in the CITR booths uh, trying to find the great arts reports. But in the meantime, I thought I'd play something with a, from Westbound Train from Boston because we just played the promo for Scotty's Scenic Drive, the terrific program that's been happening here on CITR Friday mornings for the last, oh, dozen years or so. But Scotty... Scenic Drive and Rumbletone Productions are proud to present Westbound Train Friday, August the 14th at the Fabulous Railway Club with very special guests Los Furios and The Valuables. So right now, brand new material from Boston's Westbound Train off of their new Hellcat record release. We're going to check out Come and Get It from the Westbound Train who are playing at the railway Friday, August 14th. Good times.
records it's the westbound train so if you're into the ska and you're into the soul then you should be at the railway club to see the westbound train perform live friday august 14th with los furios and the valuables we heard two tracks from the westbound train it is now time for the arts report on citr 101.9 fm vancouver british columbia canada I don't know why it is when I go see a show and I think, geez, that's a piece of crap, self-indulgent crap, that I can't, there's no forum for me to be able to say in a nicer way than I just did. I think that, uh, unfortunately, 
criticism and, and critics, art critics, are the ones who take the brunt because they're the only ones who uh, have the right, in some ways, I guess, to, to criticize. Um, it happens in our community all the time. It happens in the dance community all the time. I know it does, and in all communities. So I, I guess I would answer that with a question is, what is it going to take for us to get to the point where we can talk honestly about our work? That was the voice of Brenda Ledley speaking at the Eat Dance discussion, which happened on July 16, 2009, as part of this year's Dancing on the Edge Festival. The dialogue on dance and other arts happened at Vancouver's Alibi Room, and it discussed ego art and territory and its impact on the creative and dissemination process. This, of course, is the Arts Report you're listening to. I'm Tracy Fuller, and I'm pleased to bring you the second half of the Eat Dance discussion this week on the show. I'm going to fill the entire show with the discussion and the comments that happened afterwards. And if you have any comments for me regarding this discussion, you can shoot me an email at arts at citr.ca. Today's show is being brought to you by the Olio Festival. Olio is a non-for-profit Vancouver-based cultural expose with music, comedy, design, art, and film from across Canada and beyond. The four-day festival begins on August 13th, with every night based in a different neighborhood. And if you visit www.oliofestival.com for the festival lineup and answers to all the questions, you can also pick up some passes, which are now available. The Eat Dance Conversation was moderated by Max Wyman, and it included three keynote speakers who are all leaders in Vancouver's arts and cultural community. Bill Richardson is a writer and a CBC broadcaster. Brenda Ledley has been involved in the theatre for over 30 years and is currently the Artistic Director of Presentation House Theatre. Erwin Ostindi is the Executive Director of W2, Canada's first cross-media centre, opening at the Woodward's redevelopment in late 2009. The collective prowess and extensive mixture of artistic experience and background is aimed to inspire a whole new level of discourse within the dance and the arts community in Vancouver. Eat Dance was organized by the Vancouver Dance Managers and by the 2009 Dancing on the Edge Festival, and I send out my sincere thanks to them for allowing me to rebroadcast the conversation here on CITR 101.9 FM. This dialogue has been aired in two parts, the first of which aired last week, and a podcast is available on citr.ca's website. Today I will air the second part, starting with Erwin Ostindi's remarks, and then you'll hear a number of back-and-forth Q&A conversations that happened at the Alibi Room on July 16, 2009. And now, without further ado, here is Max Wyman introducing Erwin Ostindi at Eat Dance, Ego, Art and Territory. Owen Ostindi um, has a great story to tell us, particularly about territory. Owen's a, a, a cross-media artist who has really given up his, um, his practice for a while to create the new um, W2 facility at Simon Fraser University at Woodward's, which is a the first uh, Canadian centre where the various media and various art forms will come together to, to cross-fertilise. And uh, Owen is going to tell us why he does, does this, what the potential is, and how it relates to ego and territory. So um, if you'll excuse my style, which will be uh, improvised, uh, improvised notes. A preamble, I uh, was up 
till three in the morning last night doing grant writing. And, uh, and one of them was a grant for BC Arts Council, and the other one was a, a, a scholarship application because I'm very poor right now. And um, so curious experience at three in the morning editing your bio and figuring out what parts of the ego get represented and don't get represented at three in the morning. Um, especially when you cut a 250-word bio down to 150 words, and you think, okay, which parts are not important? Um, so that was on my mind uh, in, in, in thinking about today. And uh, then I uh, dropped my daughter off at uh, uh, summer camp and uh, went to Rec Beach, and, and I was reminded of uh, the beautiful dance performances from uh, the Bhutto dance uh, on, on the Rec Beach. And... Um, so I'm glad to see some people that I know and uh, people I've worked with here. I don't see uh, myself as having personal experiences within the dance community, um, although I think at one point I um, aspired to work in dance, and, and uh, at one point I think was thinking of going to SFU, this is about uh, 20-something years ago, to, uh, to do inter interdisciplinary work with dance and film. And then I ended up going to Emily Carr and uh, getting involved in the student union and... Um, as I tend to do, and uh, fought the good fight with uh, the students to, to, to fight the tuition increases. This is in the mid-'80s, and uh, keep, the, keep the college open. This is when, when artists were meant to be 9 to 5, and Emily, Emily Carr wanted to save money, and the provincial government wanted to save money, and funding became tied to FTEs, not to craft and practice and guilds. And, um, so I, I left that uh, experience behind and... When became more of an administrator over at Presentation House. So I think a lot of my, um, my experience has been a, a, a rather brutal tension between being an administrator uh, and being an artist. And I, I really uh, think I've struggled with that for at least 25 years. Uh, um, it was much more um, of a struggle um, when I was younger because uh, I really hated doing the administration, really hated the middle of winter doing grant deadlines for summer projects. Um, hated being the only one on the team that did it. <laughs> uh, um, now I, th I think I'm more comfortable with it, um, and I'm more senior in my field, so I'm able to delegate and access grants and projects and funds and budgets so that I can delegate that around a bit better. Um, I think um, the, te the tension really was around being manifesting things and then not being able to really emphasize the creative excellence of the projects. And always uh, rather preferring to do the creative work and hating the production work or the creative work but hating the background work. Um, I, I, remember, I remember that very vividly. And I was feeling like I really sucked in both the administration and the production, but loved the, 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 crea the creative uh, elements. But at the same time, I keep struggling and keep finding myself in this place because uh, I reject the comfort of salaried positions and, um, and keep wanting to manifest, keep wanting to create, keep wanting to put ideas out into the public sphere. Um, I, uh, a few years ago I took uh, I was offered a job at Capilano College and thinking about the 40 days off a year and uh, time with my daughter and um, 
And the same, I, this, I had the job offer, the same day I had a job offer to run Gallery Gachet in the downtown Eastside uh, Mental Health Art Center. And um, didn't mull it over too long. I felt pretty comfortable that after a few years, I was thinking, well, after a few years, if I work at the Gachet, you know, I, here's a whole bunch of things I'll probably be proud of. And, uh, um, and when I was thinking at Cap College, I was like, well, you know, what kind of gray matter would, would be remaining of me. Um, so, and just lately, and then helped build Gallery Gachet up um, and left a $50,000 salary to enter a whole, this current year of poverty, as Max was leading to, of, of trying to create a new project called W2 and uh, uh, not being paid for it and thinking, why the hell am I doing this? I feel like I'm 20 years old again. Um, and... Um, um, but you know, knowing str strongly enough that 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 is the work that I want to do and the the ideas that I want to manifest, um, that I'm comfortable in that in that decision, even though um, um, there's there's no there's very little money right now. Um, I asked Donna because um, I see this is being tape recorded. I, said, I, I asked Donna, "What's this being tape recorded for?" Because I was curious and terribly nervous about framing. Um, my talks, and because uh, I do a lot of talks, um, and when they become public, which this one might be, I think, well, who, you know, how am I shaping my words? Um, even kind of pedagogical, like, am I, am I preaching? Am I delivering some political sermon? Am I agitating? Um, and um, so I find speaking around my own personal practice in public, I'm getting more comfortable with it, but uh, it's also been one of the most challenging things, and and I'm. In, in many ways, delighted to be on this panel because of that intersection of personal choices. Uh, it's something that I'm, I, and probably I, uh, I front end quite, quite, a, quite a bit in my work, um, and my work is quite public, so it's continually front ended. Um, last year, I had probably one of the more challenging experiences in my in in my 20, 30, or 30 years of doing this kind of work. Uh, I was asked to write a chapter for uh, Grant Gallery's book on community-engaged art practice, and. Um, it took me probably six months to write the chapter. Um, I found it a gruesome experience. So props to Bill for, for doing it full time. Um, no, really, I've, I think it was the hardest thing I've manifested. Um, this is this chapter. Partially because I was, uh, on one level, terrified of the uh, embarrassment that I would cause when I put out my political ideas into the public space, um, into the art community, challenge some assumptions in the art community, um, challenge funders. Um, and so I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And still, I'm not happy with it, of course. But anyway, it's out there. It's in a, it's in a book. I, I'm not even sure what the title is. But it's, it's about community-engaged art practice uh, from the grant last year. And, um, and in it, I think it's called uh, Uncomfortable Choices. Um, um, and it posits Vancouver and Geneva as the two most livable cities in the world, or referred to as the most livable cities. Uh, and looking at uncomfortable choices that I experience and other artists experience, um, and I was really afraid of being exposed for my ideas. Uh, you know, here I am, white guy, uh, afraid of criticism. Uh, um, that's something to be embarrassed about, but um, with all the power that I have. Um, but the idea that I, here I am challenging 
funders challenging the status quo in the Vancouver arts community, uh, challenging the lack of political work that's produced by artists in the community, challenged, uh, challenging the fact that artists don't unite, challenged the fact that artists don't see themselves as, as uh, cultural workers. Uh, many, uh, many, many artists don't. Um, struggling with this horrible market orientation of our practice, struggling with the fact that our, our alliance, our arts alliance, refer, you know, some, some people in the arts alliance refer to us as uh, you know, entrepreneurs. Um, you know, so manifesting my, putting out my ideas and my critiques uh, is, is a challenging thing, and, um, but I'm, at least I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. And I'm more comfortable with it probably because people say, you know, uh, just stick with your story. Just stay with, stay with what you know is true. And... Um, and so the, the idea that I have to be cautious about how I'm shaping my words and, and who is my audience, um, you know, just feeling a bit more proud and comfortable in my skin around what this work is that I want to do and how I want to manifest it. And so W2, in a way, has been a, a, a positive and a maturing experience because it's a very public project. Uh, it's a legacy piece for a very politically hot potato, which is this Woodward's thing. Um, and so I'm getting knives in the back, I'm getting knives in the front, and that's okay because that's the work that I'm choosing, and um, that is coming with the territory. It's coming with the territory of 2010 and gentrification and inner city and uh, who has a seat at the table and, um, and who doesn't. Um, so being a little bit more true to my own vision is uh, something that I'm really striving to do, and I think it's... And that is my, my practice as a cultural worker. My practice, as, as Max alluded to, is now really around building cultural infrastructure. So my work is around, is a service, I'm in a service position for the cultural sector uh, that, that is about manifesting more space, more systems, uh, more self-reliance, more independence, more autonomy for artists in my neighborhood. Um, and not being afraid of fighting that fight um, so I think in many ways the last, the recent experience has been really about me bringing, bringing my 25 years of organizing together. And um, this is also my hometown, so it's uh, an, an opportunity to kind of evaluate what I've learned in my life uh, and, and bring that together. So what, what, where I've come from um, is um, growing up in Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish territory, uh, unceded territories. Um, and when I saw the t title of the, the talk, you know, when I when said the word territory, for me, territory is, is one thing, and that's uh, unceded territory. It, it's really nothing else because of the, the historical wrongs that haven't been righted. So, I, I mean, territory means a lot of things, but for me, territory politically really means that first before it means other issues. Uh, as a, I identify as a settler artist, um, and uh, so for me, territory is, is an important thing that we as artists, as settler artists, have to confront, have to deal with, have to put on the table, and have to keep putting on the table. Uh, and we have to act in alliance with our, uh, our uh, for me as a settler in Squamish and Slavotooth territory, act in alliance with our brothers and sisters from the Squamish and, and Slavotooth nations uh, and Musqueam. Um, now, I got to that place by looking at my own history. Um, my parents grew up during the war in, in Holland and, and came uh, under Nazi occupation. Uh, they both were uh, very active in the community uh, when I grew up, so I kind of learned that that was a normal thing, um, to look at history and to look at community service as a normal part of your life work. Um, and as a young organizer, as a young cultural worker, 
producing shows, uh, even in high school, uh, breaking the rock and roll lockdown of my high school and bringing the first new wave band in 1982 to a school dance. The band was called Dick Regret and the Amazing Ray Guns. I kind of like ended the 70s uh, lock of rock and roll. Um, And, um, um, you know, doing work, organizing cultural experiences for my peers and myself and um, carving out space and uh, very much inspired by the European autonomous movement, the info shop movements. Uh, and knowing that we had to take space, we had to organize, we had to take responsibility for our own culture. It wasn't going to be something that the local community association or the local government was going to do for us. Um, So as a young person, learning to critically evaluate my experience really helped me on my political path around understanding injustice and the systems of, 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 you know, the dominant systems in, in, in society. Um, and that, that really enabled me to situate uh, my, my work to, in that critical gaze to figure out who wasn't at the table and who was at the table. And so when I started a, a festival called Under the Volcano in 1990, it was really about showing different voices, bringing community together. So really, knowing, the first year, I think, it was a conscious effort to do like one-third hippie folk groups and one-third punk rock Actually, I thought it was the third was hip hop, but I don't know if hip hop was. It was sort of we we moved I think into hip hop like year two or three, but really like mashing up audiences, knowing that this uh, consumer culture separation between peer groups of youth was such bullshit, and knowing that you know constructing these shared experiences, these collective experiences that festivals do, um, was a really beautiful and powerful political tool. Um, um, the um, the other uh, ex- festival experiences I had, one was called uh, Mayworks. Uh, uh, it was called Festival with an Ad- Art with an Attitude, I think, when we took it over. And I think we changed it to Festival of Working Class Culture and Politics, <laughs> which wasn't, didn't go down very well with the arts people, but it certainly got us props with the political community. Um, and even to this day, um, people are, people, some of my peers say, oh, you can't drop that working class thing. You know, it's just like, oh, so so tired. Um, you know, it's like, and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like working class culture is so, un, you know, it's so quashed in our society. Um, it's funny when Gordon Campbell was reelected. Um, I don't know if people remember his acceptance speech, but the first, it was very brilliantly crafted. The first thing he did was he gave props to the government workers, and then he um, said. Um, how, you know, this is such a great sign that we're all t- in this together, British Columbians, and, um, you know, it doesn't matter what color skin you are, and, and, and class, and, that, you know, that's a thing of the past, and, and it was like, think, holy shit, like, <laughs> what, you know, this is like the province of the highest child poverty rate in, North, in Canada, and the biggest gap in rich and poor people, and it's just like, what a fucking bunch of crap we're sold uh, by the Vancouver Sun and the corporate media. Uh, and I hope they go bankrupt. Um, uh, of course, they won't. I, I hear there's a plan to consolidate them, and maybe the Black Black Empire is going to uh, David Black is going to buy them up. But um, not Connor Black, but David Black, the local guy. Um, but that you know, that's what Mayworks was about. It was like what uh, stories aren't don't have space, uh, and and which artists don't get to access the funds, and which artists don't have the stage. Uh, and so that was what Mayworks was about. But but we also didn't want to align... Like in 1993, there was a thing, a curious little gesture by the NDP, 
to fund. Uh, do people remember this? It was like Artists in Workplace Fund. It was like a, a one-off $100,000 pot of money that was was announced um, to fund artists in workplaces and, and working class culture. And I guess it's, though what, ha- what happened within a few months was that they killed the fund. It didn't happen. I guess they figured like, well, we own the Ministry of Culture now. We, we're just going to run the whole thing. But of course, you know, they also were the first government to cut welfare rates. And, and um, so uh, Mayworks was really structured. We structured it to not be dependent on provincial funding. We structured it not to be dependent on any, any core funding so that we could control that, those voices that the, in particular the immigrant communities that were involved in that project could, 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 uh, could access and could um, uh, I realize I'm, it's not being recorded anymore so I guess now I can just say whatever the fuck I like. <laughs> oh, you're recording it over there. Okay, this is just to fool me to... <laughs> um, No, no, it's all good. I'm just trying to be funny, as funny as Bill, Bill was. Um, so um, so the, 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 the purpose of that was really, as we did with Under the Volcano, was to build sustainability within our own community. You know, just like jazz, festival, uh, jazz musicians would go to their, ja- their, their, their peers' jazz shows and support the jazz community. Uh, like, how could we do that in a, in, a, in a more politicized cultural community? And so looking at uh, umbrella models of sustainability where artists supported each other and we, we identified who our, our natural allies were, and we sought them out and built those alliances and became more independent. And I guess with all the massive austerity coming in for our cultural sector with the BC Arts Council cuts, um, you know, we'll, we're going to be, more people will be inclined to do that, is figure out who, who are our natural audiences. Um, how's, how's the time, Max? It's good. Okay, I'll just say a couple more things around uh, um, uh, sticking our necks out. Um, 2010, uh, there's been very, very little critique around um, what some people refer to as blood money or there's different, different, different uh, comments around that. Um, I think the, the, the perhaps the most startling challenge is the fact that um, we have representatives like Bruce Allen uh, in in charge of cu- cultural representation. You know, here's someone who uh, is, is extremely racist, uh, has a hate on for poor people in my neighborhood, the downtown east side, uh, made racist comments around Punjabis, uh, um, uh, different different um, different experiences that really question um, how the dominant society, dominant culture is is is, uh, is is sold to the to the world for BC, and I think it's a really exciting opportunity for us to think in the next eight to ten months. How do we want those stories represented? Whose stories are we representing? And how do we find the courage to support each other as we critique the status quo? Um, that's that's a really important question. Is how do we align ourselves? How do we get comfortable um, being provocative, uh, critiquing each other's work, supporting each other? Uh, in those critiques, and not accept the notion that um, you know multiculturalism has brought us somewhere, or that feminism has brought us somewhere. That there's so much work to do. That there's a continual uh, evolution that needs to be uh, worked on by all of us um, through our funding structures. Uh, when people are invited onto juries, to encourage those juries to be activist juries, to really ch- question and challenge the status quo. 
Um, and with new media tools and social media tools, it is a tremendous opportunity for us now to flatten the playing field, to build new audiences, to create new um, blogs and social media apparatuses that can speak to our own agendas, um, and to, uh, to build community online, uh, to build community offline. And uh, perhaps I'll be able to talk a little bit more about that uh, Thank you, thank you, Owen. Um, my goodness, three really um, honest, thoughtful, provocative presentations. I just want to has, ask you, Owen, just to bring the, what you were saying back to the theme of the afternoon. Um, yes, you see W2 as a, as a, as a uh, cultural service and all the other things you've been doing as cultural services, and you've been drawn to do those things. Have you been able to analyze the role of ego in your choices? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ever-present, obviously. Um, it comes up constantly. I think um, it comes up in terms of knowing um, when to make certain decisions. You know, when do we make fights public? When do we not make fights public? When do, we, um, uh, when do, when do I take a leadership role? When do other people on our team take a, lead, my, uh, take a leadership role? Um, Certainly, the manif—you know—I use the word manifest. I use the word service um, um, because it is about putting out my own personal ideas out there. Um, I think the the comfort I have is in in that balancing act is looking at how uh, what alliances I'm functional alliances I have and what systems of accountability I have. Um, that uh, if I feel like I'm if I'm getting feedback or if I'm screwing up, then I need to critique and assess, you know, is that the right decision? Um, so I think, it's, I think I do it on that level. Um, clearly manifesting things in the world is about, you know, very ego-driven. Wednesday, August 5th at 10, Discorder Magazine hosts Fine Mists, Rollmock, and Humans at the Astoria. One night only, come get your dance on as a sea of people come through the doors at 9 p.m. looking for good music and good people. Get your tickets online and make your way down to 769 East Hastings Street, Wednesday, August 5th. August 13th to 23rd, satisfy your cravings with spicy films and sizzling parties at the 21st Vancouver Queer Film Festival. Tickets available at queerfilmfestival.ca. Hi, I'm John K. Sampson from The Weaker Thans, and you are listening to CITR 101.9 FM. Welcome back to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Tracy Fuller, and I'm about to take you back to the Eat Dance discussion, Ego Art and Territory. And you'll, you're about to hear the voice of Max Wyman and the Q&A that followed the discussion with Bill Richardson, Brenda Ledley, and Erwin Ostindi. This was recorded on July 16th, 2009 at Vancouver's Alibi Room. Three really um, 
Quite vulnerable pieces, I thought, from the our three panelists. Uh, I've very, very rarely been on a panel that's been this raw in terms of personal revelation and personal um, honesty from from Bill and Owen and Brenda. Um, I'm going to open the floor up now for questions from anyone about anything to do with these today's themes. Um, I'd like to ask you to be, you know, respectful if you can. Um, address your remarks to anyone who's, been, who's spoken, um, and see if we can advance these arguments a little further along in, in a debate that uh, that engages as much as possible this room. We were talking. I was talking with Paul Andre Fortier, who was here early on. He had to go, had to leave to um, prepare for his afternoon show. Have you seen anyone seen his show at the library? Um, he's doing, it's called 30 by 30, it's a 30 minute show every day of a solo dance performance on the library um, forecourt and you can either watch it or move on or, or do whatever you like and he simply presents it every day. And he had to leave um, earlier to get ready for it, he show, the show's at 5.15 every day and he goes, to, he's just off to the gym now. But earlier on I was talking to him about these themes and um, he was talking about the, the trap of self-indulgence that a lot of young artists fall into, and I think we all we all see that. And um, sometimes we say, "Well, that's a very self-indulgent performance," particularly in dance. And at other times, uh, it seems to be uh, justified by a sincerity or a naive sincerity that overrides that sense of self-indulgence. And yet, you know, this question of the ego as the as the engine of creativity is shown in a very raw way there. And I wonder, I could ask, I'd like to ask Donna, uh, who curates this festival that we see every year, how she deals with those issues, because they're very, they're very visible, and they always have been, and I think they're part of the package that you have to deal with. Donna. Okay, I, actually I think I'll talk about this from an artist's perspective, because a lot of people don't think of me that way. Um, I think, uh, for me, I'm a theatre director, and I do think that that actually is an art form, not just a skill. Uh, <laughs> um, so when I am considering work for the festival, I, try, I actually do try to put myself in the position of the person who wants to create the piece or has created the piece. So I can get a, a, some kind of understanding of where they might want to go with it. I also, I, I'm a firm believer that um, a lot of artistic work is the research and development piece of the world. And I do believe that people do need to fail to be able to succeed. So um, I often will take risks that people wonder why I take, have taken that risk. So I guess my, cura my curatorial perspective is that I want to support the development of the, uh, of the work. I want to support the development of the artist. So I try to put that together. And generally, what happens is um, we, I, I think the festival does have more successes than failures. I do actually, in terms of the work, that is created because I, I want to try to find a place, a way to create a safe place for artists to create their work. Um, the big challenge I have is if their work is self-indulgent, do I have the right to tell the person that I think the work is self-indulgent? 
because it might be just my perception of it being self-indulgent. So I I don't know, Max, I don't have a really good answer to that because I think uh, there is a lot of self-indulgent work created in all disciplines. Um, But perhaps if we want to be more positive, we could think about that as being a stage in the development of that artist and hope that perhaps that artist is going to come to terms with um, the fact that they are creating work that is so interior-oriented that it's not got a hope in hell of actually touching an audience, which is, I think, why... Well, for me, that's why I am involved in creating performing arts works. I believe that in the performing arts, we're here to touch our audiences. I don't believe we're just doing it to create a visual display. Thank you. Um, Panel, would you like to speak to that? Brenda. I do curating as well, and, and I, I agree. I don't know why it is that we can't have a dialogue about our work. I don't know why it is when I go see a show and I think, geez, that's a piece of crap, self-indulgent crap, that I can't... There, there's no forum for me to be able to say in a nicer way than I just did. You know, I think that uh, maybe your ideas are... Uh, you know, that of a 20-year-old, and you're a 20-year-old, but I think you have to understand that. I think that, uh, unfortunately, criticism and and critics, art critics, are the ones who take the brunt because they're the only ones who uh, have the right, in some ways, I guess, to to criticize. Um, It happens in our community all the time. It happens in the dance community all the time. I know it does, and in all communities. So I, I guess... I would answer that with a question is, what is it going to take for us to get to the point where we can talk honestly about our work? But I think there's a, uh, given that there's a tremendous scarcity of resources for a lot of our productions, there is a fear of unduly criticizing someone and someone's going to notice or funder's going to notice. There's a, there's a lack of uh, critics. There's, you know, there's very few arts critics in, in this town. So there's a, I think the question for me, these are old issues. <laughs> the, the question for me is, what are we going to do about it? Um, and another, at the Art Summit uh, took place a couple of weeks ago, 150 people from the Art Summit, about five of them were artists, um, which, which says a lot. There was a debate, a, a pretty intense debate. Um, I was on another panel, but I heard about it later, around uh, new media. Was, some, was anyone in that discussion? It was a debate about what kind of uh, social media tools the arts community could use in Vancouver to get out of this rut. And... Um, um, Charles was arguing. Charles Campbell was arguing for a kind of super site website that would be a portal for cultural criticism. And Chris Krug um, was arguing that it should be much more dynamic, using more uh, social media tools, uh, which would empower audiences to generate the, the bulk of the, the content on the site. So that was interesting because they were both solution-oriented and they, they were having a pretty, pretty serious uh, conflict um, around, the, around that solution. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <coughs> no, I just wanted to quickly say a, a word in favor of self-indulgence because uh, I think also what can happen is that an artist, whether they're young or old, um, you really only have yourself to, to, uh, to question. And especially if you're, when you present work or perform work, you can't know what an audience will feel or how they'll 
interact with your work. It's kind of condescending to think that you can, that you can program things successfully because you can think what an audience will feel or how they interact with your work. And I think there's a danger of of when you worry about whether an artist is self-indulgent is that you put the artist in the position of being responsible for the entire structure that uh, is presenting them or is building creative space for them. So it's uh, do good work, don't fuck this up because we've all worked so hard to make this this theater or this uh, society or this organization. Uh, Don't offend anybody. And so you end up you're destroying the the thing you're you're hoping to uh, you know to support. So I just like to advocate for more self-indulgence. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I have no ego. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure. Because if you if you think that uh, uh, that you have an an idea or you're curious about something, it, it takes a great deal of ego to think that anybody else would give a shit. So you have to, uh, but you really got to nurture that ego because it's it's hard to it's hard to carry through with that. Do you have a problem with your ego, Barbara? No, Barbara doesn't have a problem. Um, just wanted to uh, say that I like what Irwin said about uh, you know this brutal honesty that Brenda mentioned. I I think it's almost like there's, in Jewish circles, there's this kind of wisdom of the matchmaker. You know, when you're speaking to a prospective uh, match for someone, you don't concentrate on uh, her her, uh, how should I say, her, her wart, but she has nice eyes, and so you talk about her having nice eyes. I, no, really, you know, I mean, it makes a lot of wisdom, and it's very difficult to acquire and retain this wisdom. And I think as an artistic community, we need to encourage all that we see that is good and true to us. And that's what we have a right to do, and I think an obligation as well. We don't have as big an obligation to cut anybody down. Julie. I was just going to say something real quickly about self-indulgence. Sometimes self-indulgence to me is... I I respond to self-indulgent work because... And I say it's self-indulgent when actually I should be saying I don't think it's honest work. I just throw that out there. I I also... Hi, I'm Margot Kane. I'm um, the Artistic Managing Director of Full Circle First Nations Performance. And... um, uh, I've really enjoyed um, your thoughts, and um, I really um, I, I, re- I, I applaud um, Donna for organizing organizing these kinds of conversations because they're things that are really important to I think many artists. You sit alone with your ideas and your thoughts, and I think one of the things that kind of comes to me from hearing you is that. You know, um, yeah, it's hard to um, define what is ego. What it, if it is the I, and it is referring to me and my needs as an artist to express myself and be heard and share my thoughts. Uh, yes, I can be self-indulgent at times because of my immaturity, my inexperience. But I need to, I think there's that I that needs to feel connected to other and feel that they belong, or in their feeling of not belonging, that there are others who can also um, ally with you and your perspective. And not to forget, I guess the challenge is also not to forget that 
there are many perspectives that make up the truth of the moment. And that changes and the, you know, we're, we're always, I think that's partly where we can get self-indulgent and I think where a lot of criticisms are of maybe art society and maybe also the immaturity of, our, of, our, of, of, of where we are in our province and in our art funding and all the rest of it. Just our whole society is, is quite young and very colonized and you don't even know your history and you don't even know how colonized you are. Um, and so some of that, some of that feeling of, uh, of, of this, uh, of the fight, I guess, the struggle for the I to be heard is, you know, we can share in that struggle together. And I, and I, I agree. Uh, and I've had long had conversations in the, in the past, in the distant past, with Brenda about, um, about having a forum where we can honestly share our perspectives in a respectful way and we can be different and we can disagree but we can have the conversation because if we don't have the conversations and we don't get beyond our single pointed perspective my perspective if we don't engage in a larger conversation then it's it stays it stays in the immature and it stays it it stays in me myself and I and how important and how important my opinion is it, I think probably you know it's a challenge in in Western society anyway to think about the we it's hard it's even sometimes harder even um, I find in our Aboriginal communities and as artists and people, we're fighting like hell to get any space. And, and, and so I can get a space for a moment and a half, but I can't build a production where there's a whole team of us speaking about our perspective and sharing with you and, and working with cross-culturally with other people. I can't get that because I don't have, I don't have that um, access because because of the situations that we're all faced in terms of funding and, and who gets what and, and all the, the, the political nature of that. So I guess what I'm trying to say also is I'm, I struggle with it too. I struggle with it because um, we need to be inclusive. We need to share. And in the sharing of that, we become connected to a larger we. And many... We, you, you can get a sense where you can actually be heard and maybe cre uh, creatively also be heard and expressed together um, as opposed to just me, myself, and I, which is a very Western notion of, you know, me, myself, and I. Uh, um, my, my family, I'm, I'm adopted, I'm raised very, you know, I was raised very much to, to get along with everybody and to be respectful, and I was an eldest sister, so I come with all that, you know, that baggage of taking care and making sure everybody else is okay. But on the flip side of that is also that I was raised to be conscious of everybody's perspective, and that everybody matters, and that everybody's important, and that their words have importance, and you have to balance that out with your own eye. And, and, and it's hard, it's very hard to live with that in a world where everything is about me. To fight for the we, um, I think is important. And, and you've, just, you've just triggered all those thoughts again <laughs> that I could go on and on about, but thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Margot. I think maybe I'd like to uh, invite Karen Jamieson to speak to this. Karen's one of our senior dance artists, and she's, uh, she recently wrote a wonderful piece about making dance, her career making dance. And many of you will know that uh, Karen has been one who's done that we in terms of crossing cultures in, term, in her work. Karen, would you like to talk about this? I think um, community-engaged work, and that includes reaching across cultural abysses, uh, does really immediately bring up the question of I and we right away. And what I have found in my experience of this kind of work is that there's an enormous expansion, ultimately, though it sounds like paradox, of self by giving up oneself by um, because it's necessary you 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 can't simply express I in when you're working with a community in the context and with a community you have to give up I and that is um, I I can't quite describe it because I wasn't prepared to, to address this I can't quite describe sometimes the sense of of being completely lost in a, uh, a situation, have having to let go of all um, all your goals and all your plans and all your um, visions because because you're in you're immersed in we and ultimately the piece itself or the work itself making itself known and saying this is the work this is the work and finally that's your work our work. That's all. And sometimes I felt an enormous tension, you talk about tensions, Erwin, between uh, the desire for control, I want to express my ideas and my work, and thinking that there's a tension, there's a conflict between that and the equally strong desire to be part of we and, and dialogue and know this larger truth which I can't know except through giving up me sometimes I believe that there's a conflict and then I've come to realize that in fact it's just a constant motion of change your notion of change it just changes and I changes as you give up I that's all I can think of thank you Karen uh, Judith, did you signal you'd like to speak? I, I'm here. That is that loneliness. Missionary position one by Di Brandt. Let me tell you what it's like having God for father and Jesus for a lover on this old mother earth, you who no longer know the old story. The part about the virgin being, of course, a myth made up by Catholics for an easy way out. It's not that easy. I can tell you right off the old man in his room demands bloody hard work. He with his rod and his hard, crooked staff. Well, Jesus, he's different. He's a good enough lay. It's just that he prefers miracles to fishing, and sometimes I get tired waiting all day for his bit of magic, though late at night I burn with his fire and the old mother shudders and quakes under us when God's not looking. 
When it's time to go, I won't be breaking promises when it's time. If you are molded like a wet woolen sweater, if you are freezing like a boat in a storm, if you are firewood that's been left out of the fireplace when you want to burn up, at least you'd burn warm. down in their weather because they really couldn't know how the winter's breaking promises when it's just about to go. If you are a dance that no one requested, if you are a lamp that's been left on for me, if you are a stove that's been working all winter, if you are a girl that's been swept out to sea, you miss my face like a coffee cup empty. You miss my body like an early morning train Go to your bedroom and see what I'm doing I'm training the spring to blow your phones home Like a shipwreck you stir in the midst of a tempest That is coming for us listening to audio text on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. I'm JC Peters and um, I wanted to say that I apologize for having to shut down the um, the arts report a little early. Um, we had some technical difficulties so the show started late so I had to cut off